This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. The shocking expose of a part of the young generation. That part that destroys, the part that plunders and ravages for kicks. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Yo, my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, this is your Boo Crew Podcast, episode 386, a time of release. If you are new to the show from finding out about us this weekend at Monster Palooza out in Pasadena where we were hanging out, welcome to the family. It is incredible to have you along. If you are a previous friend of the show and came over to introduce yourself, perhaps even for the first time, we loved getting the chance to spend some time with you. Marcus, thanks for saying hey and taking that photo with us. You rule, buddy. Marcus and McKenna, David, Doris, you are too sweet to us. Austin, Michael, Isaiah, Isabel, Jerry, and Sherry. It is not a Southern California Halloween or horror event unless Jerry and Sherry come to christen it. Thank you so much for doing that and making Monster Palooza official this year. Joshua from SoCal Halloween News, thank you for doing what you do. Tiffany, Lucy, who commissioned us horror-themed cookies. I had the ghost face, Lauren had the terrifier, and Leo stashed his before I got a chance to see it. That was so kind and thoughtful of you. You freaking rock. Joe and Karen, check out Joe's exceptional artwork by following Joe Risotto on Instagram. See his work in person currently at Sugarmint Gallery beside the Michael Myers House in South Pass. Broadcaster and podcaster extraordinaire Diana Jebia. Find her on YouTube in the Bravo Besties podcast. Jose Canas, Ryan and Sierra Turek. Raphael from the band Dead Rise. Horrorcore rapper Skits Craven. Taryn and John, thank you for including us in your vlog. Love you guys. Chris Purcell, our favorite horror vloggers. Michael and Jessica from Grim Life Collective. Sincere apologies if we didn't mention you. You know who you are. You certainly made our weekend. Drop your name in our DMs. We would love to stay in touch. Although I was incredibly nervous. Thank you so much also for showing up at the Freddy vs. Jason panel. I somehow got the honor to moderate. It was a blast. And hey, if you are enjoying what you are hearing, rate the show and write a quick review over on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get found and lets us know that you are out there and listening. This week, we catch up with returning guest, multi-award-winning filmmaker and friend, Rob Savage. He tells you all about the trajectory that started after the wild success of his film, Host, that became part of pop culture history back in the early days of the pandemic. From pitching to one of his heroes, Sam Raimi, and eventually getting the script for the new hit horror film, The Boogeyman, in theaters everywhere now. He tells you all about the process and challenges of bringing this tale based on an original short story by by Stephen King to life. Get let in on his approach of building carefully curated scares and leaving just enough room for your imagination to populate the shadows. Then find out the absolutely thrilling possibilities of what's still to come from this innovative and exciting filmmaker. Episode 386 with Rob Savage and the Boogeyman is now slaying. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is one of the most exciting and inventive voices in cinema. After earning a handful of prizes for short films he created while in college, including the BFI Future Film Award, he wrote, directed, and edited his feature debut, Strings, 
when he was only 17 years old. It screened at the world's biggest festivals to tremendous acclaim, and he made history being the youngest ever to be honored with the Discovery Award at the British Independent Film Awards. He followed it up with a series of projects, including Dawn of the Deaf, that screened at Sundance and over 100 international festivals, including Sitkiss, where it was named Best Short. Along came another stunner in 2017's Salt before making history yet again. 2020's host, The Tale of a Zoom Seance, during quarantine held in real time, gone horribly wrong, carved itself a permanent place, not only in the zeitgeist of the horror genre, but into the very fabric of pop culture. It was the most talked about film in the world, literally boldly inventive and fearless with a masterful palette of ingenious handcrafted methods and an exciting vision no one had seen before. It was even part of a study where it was crowned the scariest film ever made. This creator's name was all of a sudden echoed through the pages of not only every horror blog, vlog, and publication that exists, but in Time Magazine. His unique approach conjured a three-picture deal with Blumhouse, which included 2021's phenomenal dash cam, and the attention of one of his heroes, Sam Raimi, among other wildly thrilling things to come. One of those thrilling things is The Boogeyman, a relentless nerve rattler that is in theaters everywhere as we speak, an adaptation of the Stephen King short story. We are honored to welcome back returning guest to the show, Mr. Rob Savage. Yeah. <laughs> that was incredible. That was that was like beat poetry or something. <laughs> You're supposed to like snap, yeah. right? <laughs> Dude, it's it. so Thank good you. to see you, man, and congratulations on another freaking home run dude thank you thank you god i'm so excited to be recording here in the studio the first time recording yeah, here in person right this time was on zoom which i guess was apt for that movie but right yeah man it's amazing god, you know i was i was just thinking one of the things that i can't get over is what a damn humble guy you are and an example of this is I went to see a screening of the Boogeyman over at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. It's a beautiful historic theater. It's kind of become like a mecca of horror mm-hmm. in the LA area. And I was waiting and uh, trying to get in line for the bathroom. And I tapped on a guy's shoulder, asking if he was in line. It turned around. It was Rob. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, he wasn't waiting for the bathroom, so he let me go. And I said, "Rob, how you doing, man?" And I said, "Congrats on this film." And he said, "But you haven't seen it yet." <laughs> and, and I said, "Dude, it's the doom and gloom, right? right break, exactly." Break and I was like, "Man." just getting it to this stage is congrats enough man this is the hardest part of the journey do you are you still in the position where you second guess yourself yeah oh totally i mean every single uh every single movie i make i'm like oh maybe this will be the last one maybe (laughs) they'll maybe they'll figure me out like what is it called imposter syndrome or whatever Yeah, yeah yeah but it's good you know it means that every single movie i uh i make sure that i put everything into it to you know just so i don't get kicked off sure yeah you're on your toes no i i get it man the last time we had you on the show was of course for host and you're in the uk and uh, it was released on shutter at the time i think like i think we recorded that like the day before maybe it was released officially yeah, yeah. i think like well, it was you know, right on the cusp the day, of it. if that was the day before then only one day before that had we actually finished the movie and handed it in we only finished that movie two days before it went on shutter oh my Literally, god they were about to i mean shutter shutter are the most patient uh, people in the world but the, even even they were like listen rob if you don't hand it in we're gonna have to you know we'll release it next month instead of this month yeah it would have been a whole everything would have been different oh we, my um, god we were we were we were pulling all nighters in our post-production facility and we were rendering out the movie and you know because we built all those zoom grids and every single asset like it wasn't just recorded off a right. zoom screen we made that whole thing 
And so we were rendering it and it would get to like 98%, 99%. And just as it was about to finish, there'd be like some, some horrible fucking glitch. Oh. We'd have to start the whole thing over. And so we were sitting there literally rocking back and forth, oh going insane <laughs> as, as it was four days away, three days away. And it was just like, we couldn't figure out what the problem was. And in the end, we had to hand, so the version that people saw the first week of release of host had some little glitchy mistakes in it, but we just had to release it. And then Shudder, thankfully, at 2 a.m., a week after release, let us update the movie and, and like put in the finished version because it was it was uh, it was that close to the bone getting that movie out. So I think we we handed it in and then probably pretty much jumped on a Zoom with you guys to chat. <laughs> I all I remember is just how much excitement was going on around that time around the film. And I know that. And by the way, thank you for including us on the that conversation was included on the Blu-ray yes. as a special yeah, feature. Oh my God, what an best. honor, man! Yeah. Oh my God, yes, and. Uh, I remember all of us being so excited to meet you because we knew we were in the presence of someone doing something vastly different than anything that had ever been done before. And horror as a genre champions those who challenge it. And that's what you were doing. And as much as that film changed the lives of all horror fans who really experienced it and got into that world that you created, it changed life for you as well. What do you remember about that time period and the the opportunities that kind of that unlocked? for you it was a weird thing because you know we we made that movie in lockdown in our house i spent most of my time in my pajamas just sitting at a zoom screen you know um you're figuring out this movie from afar and then it released and suddenly was you know certainly from my vantage point seemed like the biggest thing in the world it was the biggest thing that ever happened to me at that point and um but the weird thing is it was still just me in my pajamas at home, like scrolling through my Twitter feed and my emails. And it felt very, um, it felt very weird and, and distant almost. Yeah. Uh, but, so, so the kind of like fanfare around that movie was, it was amazing and it was incredible to have a film that that's, that, that's that well received. But at the same time, um, you know, I tried to hold on to the, to the, the fact that we made a movie during lockdown. I just got to make this, this, this crazy, uh, you know, low-budget horror movie with my friends was the best thing about that entire um, that entire experience. It wasn't the fanfare. It wasn't the 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 ninety-nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes or all of that stuff. It was one getting to make this movie and staving off insanity during lockdown, and then two, like actually having uh, a bit of a say in what I do next. Because I was a jobbing TV director before that. I was doing bits and pieces, and every time I would finish. Uh, a TV project, I'd be like, well, maybe that's the last time I work. Maybe it's going to be six months. Maybe I've got to make eke, eke this money out for, for, um, for the next few months until I figure out what's next. And it was, um, it was such a paradigm shift because, you know, we had, um, all these people coming, calling, including Blumhouse where, you know, where I signed this three picture deal and immediately was able to jump in with the same crew, the same team who just made host. And we were able to make, uh, this this movie that we've been trying to get away for a long time, Dashcam, we suddenly were, you know, two months later off in a field in Norfolk shooting this 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 <laughs> this, this silly crazy movie. And um, the other thing that happened is I got offered a lot of scripts, and most of them were awful. And one of them was The Boogeyman, and that was you know one of the few not awful ones. And um, it was a weird thing. It was a weird kind of sad reflection on the the difference between the UK and the US film industry as well, because I got a lot of interest from, from the States, which is, you know, I, I, and I now live in, in LA and in the UK, the, the, 
the way that host was received was very much like like here's a pat on the head i heard you know a lot of people emailed from, from the from the uk saying like oh you know i heard you did a little a cute little uh project with your friends on zoom you're well done what? And, uh, <laughs> oh wow whereas, whereas everyone in the states were like you know the studios were offering were offering um you know, franchise films and this you know and, and and i got to i got to sign on to to this stephen king movie and it was the you know it was the the, the biggest kind of like um like it was just immediately it was immediately clear in that moment and i think i think as the week after host came out i decided i was going to move to the states because it was it was just apparent that there was nothing um there was nothing for me there uh, or, or or certainly the, the opportunities were all coming from the states and um and i knew in that moment that the next thing i was going to do would be an american movie Wow, we're happy to have you over. Yeah, there. seriously, no, I mean, man. Gladly, and it's just it's sad for the for the UK because we used to be the, we used to be the kings of horror, but um, there's uh, there's just a bit of a snobbishness over there that isn't interesting isn't apparent over here. <gasps> and what do you, what do you what other things do you like about uh, living in LA? I mean, uh, LA has an insane horror community mm-hmm. with year round horror attractions and stores and all this stuff that I don't even know exa- does that exist in, in the UK at all it is there does, any of that it does, a, it does a little bit not in the same way as in the states I think that there's just there's a hunger to make movies here in LA and I mean Got LA it. is like it's built on movies yeah I think there's a there's a a, a kind of ferocious commercial edge that's built into American filmmakers and people who work in this industry that isn't bred into us in the UK there's a lot of public money you know the BFI is one of the places you get movies made and yeah. there's a there's a kind of tendency to to make films for a very niche art house crowd there's a tendency to make movies that only play at festivals and like I've always wanted to make movies like this I've always wanted to make big commercial popcorn horror movies that scare the shit out of big crowds of people and that you can sit there and feel that kind of communal thrill and you just don't really see those movies made very often in the in the UK I mean it's a sad thing but the, I mean the last couple of movies I can think of that really did that and really had broad universal appeal were were The Descent maybe 28 days mm. later it's mm. been a long time since there was a British yeah. horror movie that really um, that really you know hit in that big way and there's a lot there's a lot of good stuff too like for example The Power I really really enjoy that movie oh yeah that was a great one great. So that, so why, why did not did I not get a theatrical release like, like yeah. went straight to Shutter, and that's great yeah but that should have been in theaters. Isn't that yeah? But isn't that isn't that a great overlooked movie? Yep. And and uh, like I know those filmmakers really well. Actually, the producer of that is is my friend Rob Watson, who I'm working with on a bunch of stuff, and is really um, one of the few producers that really takes uh, takes genre seriously in the UK. And uh, yeah, they just they're constantly letting things like that slip through <sighs> their fingers. They you know films like Host, films like The Power. Uh, just just come and go and I wouldn't be surprised if Corinna's next movie is an American movie right mm. Mm. well I love Shaun of the Dead my favorite so did you I, I mean I gotta hear about this story I mean you're a huge huge Evil Dead 2 fan yeah uh, and you ended up getting a chance to meet Sam of mm. course what was that like for you you know what it was um, the the first time that I met Sam because I'd been I'd been working with um with Zainab, who who runs Raimi Productions, I've been working with her to try and build this pitch, and the idea was to take this pitch and uh, and pitch it to Sam, and he'd be the one, you know, like a Roman emperor, it'd be thumbs up yeah. or thumbs down whether they could, whether they develop it further. Um, so the first time I met Sam, I had to do a forty minute presentation to him, 
Um, so there wasn't even a kind of like nice, you know, exchanging niceties over a cup of coffee. It was straight in, pitched to his face for 40 minutes. Oh my God. So the first time you met him, you were doing a presentation, yeah, basically. Yeah. Holy uh, shit. And I had oh this, my God. this movie that I was, that I was, that I was really thought was, was amazing. And I thought was, was perfect for Raimi because it was, it's this kind of, um, blackly comedic, uh, uh, but terrifying kind of seance movie. It's almost, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a bigger budget, um, you know, non-fan footage version of that same kind of, it, it plays in the same ballpark, ballpark as host. So I was, I was pitching this to him and, uh, he's just, he's the best person to pitch to because he's so engaged. He's so, um, you know, you can tell when you've got him and he leans forward and he gasps. And oh, he, that's you know, exciting. He and he's, you know, he's brilliant. And then the best thing, I mean, the best thing about working with Sam, and this maybe sounds, this maybe sounds stupid, but is he, he'll, he'll, he'll pitch in such Sam Raimi ideas. You know, he'll, he'll say, oh, what if this happens? And then he'll pitch you a kind of iconic Sam Raimi set piece. <laughs> and it's just amazing. Um, his brain is his brain kind of works in, in a way that creates these like distinctly Sam Raimi. Ideas. Sure. Like you're familiar with it, right? Yeah. yeah. And you can see it because you can see, you know, you know exactly how he would shoot that and the, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of energy he'd bring to it. And it's, it's, um, it's surreal. You know, he, he watched, he watched Boogeyman recently and kindly did this. Um, he kind of hosted this, this, this Q and a where he was asking about the movie and he was so, um, uh, he was so kind of kind and forthcoming and, and, uh, it was, and, 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 you know, was talking, talking to me like a, like a peer and yes. asking questions about the craft of the movie. And, and it was, uh, yeah, no, it was definitely, it was one of those pinch me moments cause, cause evil dead two is a foundational movie for me. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I watch that movie every year, at least a couple of times. And, um, it's, it's, it's one of the movies that literally taught me the language of cinema and how to put together a, uh, set piece and how to it, it's one of the one of the first movies where i was like oh somebody's so there's like a vision here there's a person deciding where the camera goes and what lens you're on and what level these performances are pitched at and there's somebody who just like holds this whole stuff together in their um you know in their own unique way which is yeah. which is what host did for this uh, for a new generation man so it's yeah. so to be proud of yeah, yeah what's going on with that project is are we going to see the the fruits of that labor at some yeah, point i think so i think yeah. it's i think it's i think it's pretty much ready to go actually i've got this i since then since then i've got uh how many projects i've got three projects with sam Raimi. what <laughs> because we just uh there's there's a kind of like there's a crazy energy when we start when we start talking and throwing ideas around we'll start we'll just start pitching, pitching each other things. And, uh, you know, what we, we were actually, we were interviewing writers for, for that, um, supernatural movie. And, uh, this, this, I won't reveal who the writer is, but this great, this great writer came on and pitched a version of that movie that was kind of, I mean, it was a bold pitch because they basically said, uh, they basically said, well, this is a great idea, but how about this completely different idea? And they pitched us a completely different Whoa. idea. And you could, and me and Sam, just our eyes lit up and we're like, well, let's just do that as a separate movie. And so we, we kind of huddled off to the side and started coming up with ideas for that as its own thing. And that I think is like, that's a kind of, that's a kind of fun PG 13, but, but really scary, really inventive kind of like scary stories to tell in the dark style, um, horror movie that like, 
it's it's one of those it's one of those ideas and i get like a couple of these come around every every now and then where it's just like you get so anxious because like somebody is going to come up with this idea it's a miracle nobody's oh, made this movie before right right you like, gotta, we've beat gotta make it. this movie yeah yeah it's on the tip of everyone's tongue and we've got to make this movie before anyone else like stumbles upon it so we've got a couple of we've got a couple of other things like that as well it's like He's he him and his whole team, but both at Ghost House and Raimi Productions are just so much fun to work with. Oh, that's so exciting! That's awesome. All right, we're going to get into the Boogeyman now. So, yeah. it started off as a short story, right back in 1973. So, really, not that yeah. long of a story. Really, no, a couple pages long, eight pages. I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. Shows up in Night Shift at one point. Yeah. Uh, later. So, you, you talk about it. Kind of, you got it's one of the scripts you got out of out of Host. What do you think, just talking about King for a moment, yeah. what are some of the things that you think out of King's work have found themselves grafted onto modern horror just in general, like become part of the language? God, I mean, well, so many of, I mean, for, 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 for me, for me, a lot of those short stories that, you know, Night Shift, Skeleton Crew, th- those were really foundational stories for me. Like I started out with those short stories and, and um, especially the kind of more over the top, you know, silly but taken seriously, kind of like the Mangler and Trucks, and you know, a lot of those um, those stories pre-carry where he was really trying to get it. He was really trying to grab your attention and grab you by the collar and give you a shake. Um, you know, stories that would show up in 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 Playboy or Cavalier and really mm-hmm. needed to earn their attention aside from the, all the. <laughs> The, the nudes yeah, as you were yeah. flicking through um, so those were the ones that I would gravitate towards originally and then it, it, it's it's interesting like some of those um, some of those classic King stories you know I was, I, I, I've been because I've been talking a lot of King obviously these last few weeks I've been on King cast and I've been on a few of those um, King specific podcasts yeah. and I get the question a lot about what the first what my first um, uh, kind of interaction with King's writing was, and 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 it's hard to place because because things like Pet Cemetery and Carrie and The Shining, you're almost like born knowing them. It's like you don't know they kind of like they kind of like seep into your brain through osmosis. I'm not yeah. sure where I what like. It's part I, of like of the culture, really, right? It is. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly. What, like I think maybe I saw a reference to it on The Simpsons, and then I then I would hear just through kind of like whispered stories of kids who had whose older brother had shown them carry and you know um so that that it's it's almost hard to imagine not knowing about these foundational king texts and then you read them and then you watch those movies and they kind of they you know you realize there's so much more to them than just the 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 pop culture um images that you that you kind of know even without knowing where they come from mm-hmm. and i remember watching um you know, I remember watching The Shining for the first time and just, and this, this is well, bear in mind is the European cut of The Shining. There's a European cut and the American cut and the European cut is 45 minutes shorter than the, 45 American. minutes shorter. Wow. Yes. I did not know I, this. I, I, cut the bear I, scene out or what? The, they cut, <laughs> they cut all the bad stuff out. Oh, I don't like the American cut very much. I think the American cut is a bit clunky. The, 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 the European cut is elliptical and weird and huh. does, like all of this stuff that's kind of like almost paying lip service to King's novel like the, you know all the stuff in the American cut you've got the preamble where it's it's um, you know old Jack he you know uh, he's he's quit drinking and he's not violent anymore and that, you know all that stuff with Shelley Duval and the the um, the child psychologist all of that's gone 
literally in the European cut, it's just um, uh, his interview, and then Daddy's got a job, you know, with the with with uh, the, um, what's his buddy called. Tony, oh yeah, Tony, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony yeah, yeah. Daddy got the job. He's going to call you in a second, and then you're on the road, and then you're in the hotel, and it just like it skips past all the stuff that really deals with his um, sobriety, and it just uh, it kind of just allows you to take that stuff as uh, you, you, that stuff's inferred but not made apparent, and it the movie is so uh, unlike any other movie because it doesn't even try and give you any of that preamble it doesn't give you any kind of character context it's just this weird unhinged jack nicholson uh character who's obviously crazy from the beginning with no explanation yeah entering into this space and it's just there's something that there's something that feels and especially at the time felt so dangerous about that movie because it's not constructed like any other movie it was the first kubrick movie that i'd seen and uh it it uh it just it got under my skin in a way that nothing else really has ever has ever nothing's ever achieved that same level of creepiness since because I didn't know that movies could be like that I didn't know that movies could be these weird fucked up tone poems that were more about atmosphere and and, and that weren't interested in kind of A to B to C storytelling the way that Kubrick is um, so yeah so like I, I like I remember I remember I remember those you know, I'd work my way through those classics first, and and although I think maybe I actually saw the Mangler before I saw before I saw <laughs> The Shining, um, but yeah, they they they, I've, I I mean I've rambled so much I've forgotten the question, but I remember those movies like absolutely altering my DNA as a horror as a horror lover. Do you think there's a through line with King's work? Is there one thing in particular that you think is his brand? If you I could? think I think the thing that I always latch on to is that he's. And, and maybe this excludes some of his short stories because he's written some pretty cruel, nasty short stories. But I think in his in his longer, um, in his in his novels, he's very um, he's he's a very kind of humanist writer and a very um, uh, empathetic writer. He, you know, even in his most villainous characters, there's a kind of um, there's a sense that he understands them and he understands the, the kind of human folly of 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 what they're doing and what they're going through and and. That's that's something that I think is. I think it's the reason his his stories are so compelling is that that uh, he's not, for the most part, a, a, a cynical writer. I think he's a writer who um, really invests in his characters, but in you know in in knowing these characters so deeply and on such a human level, he also is able to speak to all that fucked up stuff that we don't want to talk about. He's right. able to talk. Yeah. yeah on a really profoundly disturbing level about grief and loss and uh, the kind of, um, you know, even, even the kind of, um, the kind of selfishness innate in that, you know, in Pet Cemetery, the idea of, of, of wanting to, wanting to overcome these, these feelings of, of loss and, you know, no matter, no matter what it takes. And I think there's, there's something, there's something that there's something that's 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 fundamental to horror there, which is like speaking to all those taboo things that we really don't want to put words to. And he's able to find such eloquent ways of talking about um talking about all these nasty things that you never broach in a conversation, yeah. but somehow within the realm of fantasy <clears throat> he can get he can get away with it. And it's also it's also and this is why, you know, Kubrick's The Shining doesn't really feel like King because Kubrick's which I, I, you know, I love, I love the shining obviously, but he's not really interested in, um, 
he's more interested in atmosphere than story. He's more interested sure. in atmosphere than character. And I think King is like fundamentally a uh, storyteller. He's just, it's in his blood. He can't, he can't help it. He's the, he's the kind of, um, he's the kind of writer who, uh, he wants to take you on a journey and he wants to, he wants to make sure that you know that there's a, you know, that you're in a safe pair of hands at the wheel. You know, he's maybe gonna, he's, he's gonna, he's gonna, uh, he's gonna drive a little erratically as he, as he, as he snorts a nose full of coke during mm-hmm. some of the novels, but still he's like fundamentally the audience experience is front and foremost in his mind. And I'm not sure that's, that's exactly what Kubrick is going for. Kubrick is, 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 uh, is more about, ideas and atmosphere whereas king is always a character and story and audience the boo crew will be right back i want to tell you of a new motion picture entitled the undertaker and his pals this movie is a shocking expose of a part of the young generation that part that destroys the part that plunders and ravages for kicks this is the story of two knife slashing axe hacking motorcycle riding maniacs and their pal the undertaker if you think you can take it don't miss it the Undertaker and his pals. That's a good setup for what really is kind of, um, well, in the short story, it's the centerpiece of, of the story is that kind of scene in the doctor's office that's in your film with Lester Billings. That's, that's the centerpiece of the short story in your film. It's not the centerpiece. It's more like it's the heart. Yes. And in the short story, Lester Billings is the main character. He's kind of misogynistic. Mm-hmm. He's violent. We get a kind of a bad vibe from him. But Stephen King is, he's kind of empathizing with this character and makes you kind of as well in, in terms of what loss he's suffering mm-hmm. at the loss mm-hmm. of his children. In this film, you cast the wonderful David Dasmalchin yes. in that role. We, we see a different side. It, it, you kind of lean more into the tragic nature of that character and mm-hmm. what happened. It's incredibly moving. Talk about kind of going that way and pushing David in that direction. Yes. Was that in the script? Was that something that you found in David that you wanted to inject into it? How did that kind of work? It was a bit, it was a bit of both. So it was in the script. We kind of moved away from this idea of, of Lester Billings as this kind of, um, uh, you know, toxic, uh, uh, retrograde, um, you know almost he's almost like a kind of truck stop harbinger of doom in, yeah. in the short story and we wanted him to be we wanted him to be more sympathetic and we wanted there to be a bit more of a kind of um duality between like this guy who is uh who is reaching out you know for some kind of understanding and he's trying to he's trying to kind of plead to the humanity of will harper the the therapist character but at the same time he's got this this violence in him which you can see simmering under the surface and you can you can uh, get a sense of um danger as he switches between the two mm-hmm. in the short story he just feels like aggressive and violent from the off and, and it's almost like a kind of um he's slowly kind of uh he's slowly kind of er- eroded down to the point where he's he's um Finally, at the end, you know, able to accept uh, uh, that maybe he should, maybe he needs some therapy, maybe he needs to talk it out. And then, of course, you know, King rather cruelly, you know, um, twists the knife on him at the very end. Whereas we were interested 
we were interested well one the kind of like overall the overall kind of theme of the 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 film if you could kind of lock into one was this idea of um communication about being being listened to and speaking to this to this inner darkness as opposed to repressing it this person who has been through some of the most traumatic events you can possibly imagine and and comes to this um comes this therapist who who himself has just gone through a loss seeking to be understood and that the whole film is really about it you know it's this is a grief movie it's a trauma movie you know you can roll your eyes at that there's been a lot of trauma horror recently but the idea that we were locking into was about this family who have all gone through a loss um but are finding it hard to communicate with each other about their own grieving processes and, and instead are just pretending that everything's fine pretending they're ready to move on and they're they're kind of swallowing down all of this this darkness that they don't want to or can't deal with on their own and that almost that denial of of their grief is what the creature represents or what yeah. the creature grows in and festers in and and they're 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 all living in the same house under the same roof but they're completely isolated from each other they may as well be a million miles away from each other um and that's exactly what this creature wants and that's exactly what this creature um is able to 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 feed on and, and you know and in trying to pick them off one by one and so with Lester, we wanted to lean into this idea of somebody who rather than rather than sitting there stewing in their grief is going to this um this therapist almost as like a last will and testament just to be listened to just to be understood and that there's a as there's a kind of um it, it's the whole scene is like a plea he's he's pleading to be to be listened to and uh and so uh, david David, who was just, it seemed to me the perfect choice. Um, and I'd always wanted to work with, uh, I chatted to him and I knew he was kind of reticent about, um, about taking on this role because I mean, like Dave, there's a lot of, there's a lot of overlap with, 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 you know, the darkness that, that David's been through in his life and this mm -hmm. character of Lester Billings. And he wanted to, you know, he's a big Stephen King fan. He wanted to make sure that he wasn't, doing this in a way that was kind of glib or obvious he would he was going to go all in and so we we chatted and his interpretation of the character was was a again a more kind of sympathetic take and one that um that again contained that same threat of violence and like one of the one of the things that we do in the movie is that the first 20 minutes of the movie almost is pretty monster free apart from the cold open and the threat is um the threat that's implied is like a real world one. There's this guy who's just come into the house who is spinning this story about a supernatural creature that that's killed all of his kids. But there's always this kind of um, implication that maybe he was responsible. And now he's a wall around the house with your teenage daughter upstairs. And we, you know, we we spend a lot of time in the movie for a movie called The Boogeyman in kind of like this space real world horror. And so David plays that just beautifully. This this. Um, this kind of wounded quality but then in in just in an instant he's able to just his face just hardens in this brilliantly scary way and you think oh fuck this guy is like this guy's gonna jump across the table and <laughs> yeah. stab me with that pencil <laughs> and david is just he's it's such an incredible performance it's a oh. world-class performance and and um the first time we rehearsed that on set everyone just was everyone fell silent and still and th this is before cameras were even up this is everyone oh was watching God. it from a wide shot and you could just tell 
it was going to be a special a special scene. Oh did yeah. Did he stick to the script or did he improvise any scenes? He any lines? we we went through it. We went through it before and I think he kind of like word we 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 reworded a couple of things. Um because he wanted to I think there's also in the, in the in the King short story and I think King is like King is discussing the same themes as we are but he's also he there's there's a kind of like a whole bunch of things going on in the king short story and one of them is like there's a uh uh both the characters are from the different social stratas and i think there's an idea of like lester billings as this kind of like calloused hand worldly character talking to somebody who's a much more cerebral much more kind of um you know is in, in a perhaps in a higher social strata and there's a, there's definitely a kind of um something about something about class or something about um the kind of people who who often undergo this kind of suffering and then the kind of people who who um, exist in a world of ideas and we didn't want to lean into that quite so much we didn't want this to be like will as a biden voter and, and lester as a trump voter we didn't want to really like <laughs> lean into that as much and i think there was a bit of that still hanging over in the script in terms of just how he would word things and he you know he'd uh He'd drop his syllables, and he'd sounded a bit too. Um, yeah, he sounded. He just sounded a bit too. Uh, 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 whatever, whatever the word is, yokely is sure. the word that uh, that David used the other day, <laughs> which we wanted to le- we wanted to lean away from. So, so David was just keeping an eye on that, making sure that it felt like it felt like in other circumstances these two characters could could hang out or like meet at their kids' ball game or something like that. Yeah, it's so it's so cool how even like just from that from that one performance, there's things that he said during his kind of monologue mm. to the doctor and facial expressions and that tear that drops down yeah. and all that stuff. It's stayed with me throughout the duration of the movie. And it literally haunted the movie in, in mm-hmm. terms of I kept thinking about what he was saying through the whole thing, and kind of applying it not only to what I was seeing on screen, but also uh, my own life. Yeah. I mean, he said something about like a, the boogeyman is what happens when what you weren't paying attention to your kid, uh, some yeah. along the lines, right? Yeah. I mean, I instantly grafted, okay, the boogeyman for me is work. It's, mm-hmm. it's my job. Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's for me. And I think that you've managed to, everybody's got their own boogeyman yeah. and you've managed to, you know, give that boogeyman a face for anyone who watches the movie mm-hmm. and that freedom to kind of make it your own, which makes it fucking scary as hell. Yeah. Cause you can come at it from lots of different angles. That's the thing. It's, it's, um, you know, as as a kid, boogeyman is the it's the word that we give the shape in the darkness when we wake up in the middle of the night. It's the first way that we kind of like put a face to that fear and that kind of feeling that maybe our parents can't protect us from everything. But it's also from a parental point of view, it's like it's like you kind of when you're talking to kids, the boogeyman is just this this kind of um, this word and this concept that you that you use to start to talk about the fact that the world isn't always a nice place and that not everyone has your best interests at heart and that there's 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 danger out there outside mm. of you know this protective bubble of of the family unit and it's um yeah the boogeyman is like a great cipher for talking about these things from from either perspective as a yeah. kid as an adult as you know and, and then and then Sadie p- played by Sophie Thatcher is almost like kind of in a liminal space between those two worlds you know she's She's um, she's young enough to be to still be you know she's not an adult she's not a kid but she's young enough to 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 see that Sawyer her younger sister who's who's talking about this creature under her bed 
um, that there's some truth in what she's saying or that she's disturbed in a way that doesn't feel like the usual kind of childish stories she tells. And then she's able to, you know, she's trying to rally her skeptical father into believing. And, it, you know, it just felt like an interesting, interesting like perspective to tell the story through. What about that strip tease of the creature itself, that kind of being able to pull it as a, as a tension wire kind yes. of throughout the whole piece. And uh, in, instead of making it that, that challenge of not making that a frustrating experience, but to kind of make, make it a delicious experience for us to watch and take. Yeah. In. Well, it felt like, I mean, like you say, everyone's got their own boogeyman and that boogeyman is something that it, it, it exists in so many cultures around the world and everyone's got their own image of it and their own idea of it. And it was, about giving room for giving room for people's interpretation of the creature and making sure that some of the biggest scares of the movie and some of the most um, uh, kind of evocative images of the movie didn't give you everything on a plate that gave you um, gave you enough nightmare fuel to take it home with you and to imagine your own things in the darkness, but um, but also. Uh, you know, so it felt like it was kind of reinvigorating those old childhood fears. And one mm. of the things, one of the things that I always felt is that this movie was best served um, when we treated it more like a haunted house movie than a monster, than a creature feature, you know, like in a quiet place, you know, as ferocious as those monsters are, they're, they're, they're flesh and blood and you can punch them in the nose and you can shoot them with a shotgun. Um, this creature, even though ultimately it kind of manifests as something that, that's flesh and blood, there's a supernatural element to it as well. And I wanted to, I wanted to make it feel like, um, yeah, I wanted it to feel like a kind of classic haunted house movie for most of the duration. Part of that, but part of that was about taking these these um, these familiar concepts because it's the boogeyman it's gonna it, it lives under your bed it lives in your basement it lives in your closet it's it lives in the darkness you know everyone everyone who who uh you know everyone's been everyone who's been a, a a terrified kid you know imagining the boogeyman is 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 there in the in the darkness knows you know you hide on your quilt you turn the bedside lamp on and you're safe you know you know that in the light you're safe so it wasn't about trying to be a smart ass and try and like make some a24 movie version of this it was <laughs> right. like it's the boogeyman everyone knows the rules and you feel it in your gut you know it innately so then it's about it's about making that feel not like some silly childhood fear anymore but something that was fresh and interesting and how do we dramatize those in ways that make you feel like that terrified kid again and part of that was about taking these um uh taking taking these scenes as the characters are first noticing the presence in their house and making the audience feel like anytime there's darkness in the frame uh the creature could be lurking mm, there you know yeah. a lot of these early scares all you see is a glimpse or you see some eyes twinkling in the darkness and really the most of the frame is just this dark cavernous space and then the audience is thinking well you know every time every time we've got a dark doorway or we've got this kind of looming shadow in in the shot the creature could could be uh, could lurch out of there or could catch me by surprise. So you're always on edge, and it's it's. Um, I mean, I probably talked about this last on the last podcast because it was something I was I was referencing with host, and it's it. I basically every single podcast I'm on, I'm talking about this movie because it's my favorite horror movie of all time, which is The Innocence, the um, the 1960s uh, 1961 uh, Jack Clayton movie, which is the best haunted house movie of all time, I think, and it does 
wonderful things with the widescreen photography. It's Freddie Francis who shot it. And um, just like our movie, it shot 235 to one. So there's a lot of negative space. Whenever you're framed on a character, you've got two thirds of the frame to to kind of peer into mm. and, and, and look. And they do wonderful things with, with, um, with shapes and shadows emerging out of the corner of the frame. And I wanted to feel like uh, every time there were these, these, Se- these kind of sections of darkness on the screen the audience was almost invited to be a detective to study the frame and imagine that something is maybe lurking there you know and actually mike flanagan did this brilliantly in, in hill house you mm-hmm. know by putting things in the periphery of the frame and and uh making you um kind of second guess whether you'd seen something or not uh, the, the film itself the title of the film mm. just tells you that there's going to be beauty in the darkness mm. whether it's a negative space or just what you imagine, what you think you saw, mm-hmm. you know. Now, in terms of, uh, on a technical note here, uh, in terms of crafting these scares for the film yeah. in, in the darkness and working with a lighting crew and your DP, mm-hmm. uh, did you get to, you know, uh, try out new techniques and optics and lenses and lighting to, to craft these scares and scenes? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the wonderful things about doing this movie is um, we actually had a budget, you know, on the other, on the other <laughs> movies, we had almost no budget. And, uh, and, uh, we, we, uh, we basically made host and dash cam by getting all our team together and putting a list together of all the things that we had for free. So with host, literally it was like, well, none of us can leave our home. So everyone get on a zoom in an hour and bring the creepiest thing that's in your house. And so, you know, Teddy would bring his puppet and somebody would bring, you know, like maybe we can make my cupboards open up with some fishing wire. And then we'd write the script based on all these free things that we had, you know, available to us. Whereas in the boogeyman, we had studio money and we had, um, you know, we had all these resources and toys that we could play with. And so it was, um, it was really amazing to be able to, to craft these scares uh, you know, from you take what take what was in my mind and and build a set that then that re, you know that kind of replicated some of these scribbles that I'd done and and gave us these um, you know cavernous doorways and and twisting hallways that I that I envisioned and uh, moved the camera in ways that uh, that I hadn't been able to before. But it was you know in the same way as as host in dashcam. It was it was about. Um, kind of creating a language for the horror to exist in and getting the audience to kind of, uh, uh, to understand the rules, the rules of the, of the creature and then how the scares would, the scares would manifest. And, and, uh, and I wanted it to feel, you know, like we were talking about King as being a, a, a writer who, who takes you by the hand and, and says, look, you're in the hands of a master storyteller. I'm going to, I'm going to take you through this step by step. And, and, uh, I'm not just going to, um, noodle around in, in atmospherics. I'm going to tell you a story and, a, and it's going to be a good one. I wanted the, the visuals of this movie and the storytelling of this movie to be, to be that way. I wanted everything to feel deliberate and everything to feel like, um, like I'd thought about and was putting the audience front and center. Um, so it became a question of like, well, you can do anything. I mean, not that we had the budget to do anything, but it was like, you can do a lot more now rather than just splashing out let's let's figure out what the best experience the best way to drip feed these scares for the audience is and the best way to kind of create a language that can build and build and build into something really terrifying with this movie light is is uh, is the weapon basically and it's a journey kind of explored in candlelight and, and shadows i would imagine there would be kind of a challenge in figuring out the 
perfect lighting for these scenes? Yeah. Was there a lot of like testing and we did all, you know yeah. different things trying to yeah. get it right? Well, yeah. I mean, again, to shout out uh, Eli Bourne, who's our amazing cinematographer, who's just a complete complete genius. And and uh, one of the things, and again, it goes back to the fact that this is you know this is not a movie. This is not a movie that's trying to reinvent the wheel. This is a movie that's trying to send you back into those fundamental childhood fears. Um, and we're playing with this idea of light and light and darkness and light staving off the darkness and staving off the creature. That being said, we didn't want this to be a movie where characters are wandering around with flashlights that are faltering and you have to smack yeah, them yeah. To, to get, you know, <laughs> to get a, a true beam. Um, we wanted every single scene where you play with light and dark to feel like it was something you hadn't seen before and so me and the dp we would you know and it goes back to to the writing i mean mark Heyman, who wrote who wrote the movie came up with a lot of these great scenes and these great ideas for the lighting and then me and eli Bourne would would test them and we'd we'd have uh you know our production office was filled with all these things that would like christmas lights and all these these toys that would emit light and we were playing around with them and and figuring out what would be best um you know we wanted to make sure that uh every single time we had some light device that was that was being our weapon against the creature it was making that scene um distinctive and and tense in a way that was unique and like it's one of the things that i've that i've that i've really taken from studying james wan's movies mm. his set pieces and i think he's a modern master when it comes to set pieces but the thing that he does really beautifully across his movies is he's um every single set piece has uh, a uh, an identity it's got some some hook that you can then describe to your friends the next day you can say oh you know the the hide and clap scene in the conjuring and they immediately know what you're talking about or like you know the uh the scene where she's watching tv and the remote goes missing in the conjuring too you know there's always there's always some kind of dynamic that he hangs the whole scene around and we wanted that to be the light devices so you can watch this movie and you can say you know the the scene where she rolls the moon ball, yeah, the moon ball. <laughs> or the scene where she's flashing the video game you know that's it's each of those sequences is built you know even the five ten minute sequence is often built around a very simple hook that the audience can can latch on to and uh or you know or the the finale i can just say christmas lights and you know what i'm talking about but that's that's a plays a big part in the tension um so we really wanted every single scene to feel visually distinctive and then also we wanted to you know i i i wanted to make sure that in our tight running time we're, we're like 93 we're 98 minutes with credits but like you can leave after 93 minutes because 93 minutes is when the movie ends 93 minutes i wanted every single scare every single set piece to feel like we were coming at it in a slightly different way and so what i did is i got different pieces of card different colors and i would write all the scare scenes up and and different color card would correspond to different kinds of scare. So if it was like a sudden jump scare, it'd be red. If it was more of a kind of hide and seek creepy scare, it would be a blue and whatever. And I put them all up on the wall and I could then stand back and see all the different colors and be like, Oh shit, we've got so much red on the wall. We got so many just like sudden jump scares. That's going to feel cheap. We need some more build up. Oh, that's more such tension. a cool idea. I yes. love that. And it's great. You can see the whole movie. And then, you know, so that, so like for instance, the scene where she's playing video games, Originally, that was much more a kind of short, sharp, shocking jump scare scene. And we had a lot of red up until that point. We had a lot of jump scares. And I was like, no, we need we need our, our uh, velociraptors in the kitchen scene, which is what we called it. We need a scene that's much more about a kind of hide, hide and seek, you know, has the creature spotted her 
um, hold your breath kind of we needed that dynamic at that part of the movie and so we rewrote the scene to be you know not that it touches on that scene that's like one of the best horror scenes ever made but it, it, it was uh, it was much more in that vein and so you know we were always trying to make sure that that uh, and this is this is my philosophy with all with all of these movies it's the reason that all of my movies are so short is I just want to make sure that everything really earns its place and there's, you know, there's not a scene in this movie that I'm not incredibly proud of. Did anything creepy or unexplained happen on the set? You know what? It did to Sophie and Viv. Sophie and Viv <sighs> had some weird, creepy shit go on in their apartments. I'm not quite sure what it was. I know Sophie had like a weird, um, uh, she'd have like things moving and like lights flashing and flickering. I mean, we shot in New Orleans and New Orleans is like, yeah, that's, that's a haunted, creepy yeah. <laughs> wonderful amazing my favorite city but very creepy um me i was like so exhausted that every night probably things were flying around my apartment at night as soon as i got home i collapsed in bed every night and, uh, <laughs> just passed out. no nothing's host is the only movie where things have like legitimately weird things have happened was it a real house that you guys filmed in or was it was it a set down there no it was a set it was a set we rebuilt it all oh, but wow. we were all staying and you know like everything Every every old building that we were staying in this old oh um, sure yeah uh, uh, apartment complex that um yeah a lot of a lot of gnarly shit had gone down it and what was it like kind of being being on set in a you know a big massive big studio movie being the director but still being able to kind of make yourself available for all the departments and be able to manage everything was it was it mm. overwhelming for you how did you kind of divide your time amongst everybody no I kind of love I kind of love existing in that that stressed out kind of like stretch thin space it's what i you know it's what i thrive on so i I, like and i really try and put care into every single aspect of of anything that i make i mean it's it's um you know each movie almost kills me but i but i get to the end of every single movie knowing that i literally couldn't have done anything more Mm, my body feelings given up on me yeah so it's like even if, if if people love or hate the movie i know that it's 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 um I did everything I could and it's exactly the movie uh, it's exactly the movie I wanted to make or at least it's me it's me pushing on all cylinders to get that um that being said I mean there's so much stuff going on on a, on a huge film set like that that you've really got to trust the collaborators and I think like over the course of these three movies and to be honest my whole career because the you know the first movie that you know you mentioned I, I shot this movie when I was 17 I was um writing directing editing shooting uh co-producing like i just did everything almost everything on that movie i was a one-man band and it was uh you know i was 17 so i had the energy to do it but it's not wasn't a sustainable thing and slowly over the years i've been able to like delegate more and um you know bringing in collaborators like uh like uh well i mean mark mark Heyman, who's who's just this incredible writer and one of the i mean the best um collaborative experience i've ever had with a writer i'm able to i'm able to uh the way that i work with 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 writers and this is true of every collaborator is like i'll come with i'm always scribbling in notebooks and filling uh you know pages and pages of of storyboards and wouldn't this be a great scare and and you know um or or you know i just watched the changeling and we should try and get a scale like the bouncy ball scale like what about this and i'll pitch that you know I'll, i'll i'll be very annoying to writers and a lot of writers get put off by that um, Mark is great because 
uh, I'll I'll come to him with a fully formed scare that I've plotted out and storyboarded, and it'd be like, let's just let's let's do this. Isn't this the best scare ever? And and he'll be like, Rob, this isn't going to work for ten different reasons. I'm going to lay them out for you. There's this, 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 and the character wouldn't do that, and blah blah. Um, and he he's so he's so locked into the story and the characters that he's able to he's able to kind of like calm me down and yeah, say, temper it and That's say cool. and say, look, but I get what you're get I get what you're what you're trying for here and i get what you're excited about and how about this and then he'll pitch me an idea that's like does what my idea is trying to do but fits into the fabric of the movie and is just is way better or we'll just like bounce it back and forth and he's so not precious about it and he's able to um to not be affronted by other people pitching in ideas he'll take the best idea from anywhere and he'll always be able to um to kind of like hone in hone in on what i'm so excited about and so when whenever he hands in the script and the script for Boogeyman, you know, especially so, it's something that I'm so excited every day to get up at five AM to go and to go and shoot. It's not like there's no day that's just a slog or that's um well, we've got to get this scene where, you know, Doctor So and so does the exposition so we can get to the fun stuff. It's yeah, all fun yeah. stuff. And um and it's the same with all the collaborators. Like I'm able to they're able to they're able to zone in on what's exciting me and they're able to get high off that same idea and they they're able to go away and bring me back these ideas that are so much so much better than 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 uh, anything I could have you know decreed from on high they're able to go go away and 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 give me something that scratches that same itch that I'm kind of getting at but um but with their own you know uh uh incredible skill set infused into it and and we had the best team on this movie and all of my favorite parts of this movie come from the HODs that I worked with, the actors, things that they threw in. Like, there's so much of the actors' personality in this movie. Like, there's so much stuff um, that, that that's that's that I can trace back directly to our incredible team. Going back to you know the the, the script and the screenplay that, that you originally read for this. After reading it, what were the things that you feel excited you to be able to elevate and? bring to life from what you read if you could at yeah. the core you know what i mean yeah because i because when i came on board beck and woods had done this the first draft of the script I, d- I didn't end up working with them directly over the course of this they um they'd already they were doing 65 while while um while i was prepping this so so the the breadth of my work was with was with mark but i came on board and beck and woods had done this um screenplay that they'd really cracked the the backbone of this story by figuring out that this this way of incorporating the short story which like you know like you say it's like eight pages um that became the kind of inciting incident in act one lester comes and almost infects this family with this demonic presence and then we follow off the harper family um so they they cracked that and i thought that was such a great way into the story um they uh their version followed will the father and kind of the plot was the plot kind of went off in a different direction it much more it 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 took place in the world of adults which 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 to me didn't feel like the thing that i was excited about was was making something that evoked those childhood fears and Mm. made me feel how i felt when i first read um the king short story um but i saw the possibility to tell that story within this framework that they'd set up and um we yeah, we ended up we ended up kind of developing it off in a different direction and telling the story of of um, the kids in the Beck and Woods draft. It was a brother and sister, and we made it two sisters and um, focused it on on Sadie as our hero. 
But um, no, the moment uh, the, the the one scene, the one scene that that, that exists almost wholesale from from Beck and Wood's draft. Although in their version, it was the father doing it to the kids. In ours, it's the it's the therapist, Doctor Weller. Um, was the red light scene, the flashing red mm, light scene? Yeah. Which I thought, which I I remember when I read that, I felt if I can um, if I can if I can pull this off and we can we can um, make this scene re- uh, you know play as well on screen as it reads on the page. This is like a classic horror scene. Oh yeah, and um, you know, hopefully I didn't fuck it up too bad. But that was that was the scene. That was the scene where I was reading it, where I was like, "Oh, okay, I see what this can be." Yeah, yeah, it made yeah. the trailer, man. It, made the trailer. it, it, it <laughs> is the trailer. It's yeah. Great, it's great. It's still, the shot of Doctor, the creepy shot of Doctor Weller, yeah, kind of creepily smiling, always gets the, the pretty much the biggest reaction in all of the screening. Yeah, yeah, freaked the shit out of our kids, and we went and took them to Evil Dead Rise, and they saw nice. that trailer. Yeah, dude. They were like, <laughs> <laughs> we have to see this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Excited. Did you keep anything from the production? Any costumes? Any props? Tell the moon ball? Anything? So much. So oh. yes. So the night. <laughs> I'm 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 wary that Disney are listening. Oh, they don't care. Yeah. When we when we wrapped, we you know we 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 wrapped and everyone hugged and said goodbye and, and we we toasted and then uh, me and my assistant Jen uh, stayed <laughs> until all the lights were shut off in the, on the stuff stage. in duffel bags. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah and we, <laughs> we, we had a torch and we went around like uh, you know like we were we were uh, Watergate yeah like we were bugging the Watergate uh, and um, literally had a little a screwdriver and we're like taking the set apart and stealing bits and pieces awesome. and I stole I stole the, 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 a couple of the couple Borrowed. of the houses borrow yeah, yeah a couple of the houses have like very meaningful Stephen King numbers on them so oh, I like yeah, pried yeah, those yeah. off and took those and, and no the main one was um the, we had a, a, a boogeyman creature head, oh, 3D, oh. 3D printed. That was like it was how I would scare the cast whenever the monster was meant to be CG'd in. I would like it was like a pantomime horse. Or, no, it was like Staphne from from Evil Dead. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was on a stick, <laughs> and I would run at, run at the actors you know, making monster noises. But um, but I took that home with me and didn't tell anyone and uh eventually i got a call from from disney being like we've lost a monster head i wonder if you could uh if you could tell us what happened to it and uh i don't know what happened to it yeah i know i played <laughs> I, I played dumb i played dumb for a little bit but <laughs> but in the end they were just like rob we know you stole <laughs> and it's fine i just had to sign some paperwork yeah now exactly uh, the boogeyman now now sits on my mantelpiece uh modeling my hats that is so amazing. Cool. Wearing my sunglasses. That's but, uh, amazing. So next project, what's the next thing we think we'll see from you? Well, I've got, there's a, uh, one of the short films that I made about five years ago called Salt. Has yes. A, uh, an adaptation that's been written. Really? I is, love Salt, yeah, man. It's one of the best scripts that I've ever read. And I say that as, you know, knowing that it's. it's so someone ma- someone wrote a script version, like a full feature length yeah, version of that? Yeah, yeah. We've, we've had, we had that set up a couple a few years ago and we've got yeah we got a draft of that that I think is like just just it's it's uh, I'd shoot it I'd shoot it tomorrow if I could it's it's uh, it's really exciting so there's that that might be happening Um, the Raimi projects um, are all are all racing ahead any one of those could be next Um, and then you know if, if this movie doesn't flop if people go and see this movie this movie makes money which I really hope it does We've got a really fucking exciting um, 
sequel idea. Oh yes, that is that is uh, uh, completely its own horror movie. It's it's something that you know if this wasn't a Boogeyman sequel, I'd be so excited to shoot it. It's a whole different realm of horror. It's something. It's like. It's like a bucket list movie that I really hope I get to make because I think it will scare the shit out of people and be so um, unlike any horror sequel that's come before. And the studio are excited about it. And Mark is is uh, is is going to write it. Who wrote Who wrote um, Boogeyman? And uh, it uh, yeah, it all depends on these numbers. So I hope people can go and see this movie and. Uh, and we get to make that. that would well, be the, yeah, you, you, people are going to go in droves to see this. It's absolutely incredible. Yes. Rob, man, thank you so much for being here. It's so nice to have you here in person. Yeah. And God, you just went and made uh, another masterpiece. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Everybody go and see this thing. And, and then we're going to unlock some more amazing stuff from Rob on the way. We got to keep yeah. supporting this guy because he's out there innovating and crushing it as he always does, man. Thank you again so much, man. Thank you. Thank you. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 386. Special thanks to our guest, Rob Savage. At time of release, see The Boogeyman in theaters everywhere now. Production tracks for this one provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, for myself, Lauren, and Leo, it is The Boot Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales from the Boo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting. Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.